And now hear God's holy word from 1 Samuel chapter 8, continuing our study in this book. Now it came to pass when Samuel was old that he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was, was Joel and the name of his second Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain, took bribes, and perverted justice. Then the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us give thanks. Father, we praise you and do give you thanks for your word today. Strengthen us by it. I pray that you would fill me with your Holy Spirit so that I might articulate these things clearly. Give us all strength and attention and patience to hear and receive your word today. Deliver us from all distraction. Deliver me from all error, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Even if you have never seen the movie The Graduate, and I'm not recommending it. I gave up recommending movies a long time ago, and certainly I'm not going to recommend The Graduate, but you're likely familiar with that very last scene, that iconic scene at the end of the movie, when Dustin Hoffman's character interrupts the wedding of the girl he desires so much. And he's there at the back of the church, banging on the glass at the narthex in the sanctuary of the church. And he's shouting the girl's name. He's shouting, Elaine, Elaine, over and over and over. And you know, the girl leaves the altar where her wedding is being held. She leaves the man her parents want her to marry. And she, laughing, runs down the aisle and joins Dustin Hoffman's scruffy, anti-establishment character. And they, laughing, run out of the sanctuary, laughing, catch a bus, laughing, walk down the aisle of the bus while everybody turns and watches them. And they sit down on the very last row. Uh, while everybody wonders what's, what's going on, and they're, and they're laughing. Now, the last shot of the film was intended to be the couple laughing on the bus, happy to begin their new life together, having thrown off all these expectations that had been put on them. Now they're happy to kind of go their own way and do their own thing. But the director brilliantly left the camera running at, at the, after that scene and just left the camera running as the actors' faces fell into this kind of grim, ho-hum kind of expression. And in character and, and in the story, it, it's brilliant. And that's when uh, Simon and Garfunkel's you know, uh, Sound of Silence starts playing, Hello Darkness, My Old Friend, uh, which is so appropriate. So the characters, uh, their faces are captured uh, from this, this transition of elation and giddiness and happiness to growing more sober and reflective and serious. What is communicated so brilliantly there is that transition from elation to reality. When you finally get the thing you've pined for, when you finally get the thing that you fought and clawed for and you've compromised for and agitated for, the thing that you knew would be the one solution to all of your problems. If you could just have this thing or this person. This would be your identity. This would transform everything. This is what I need to be a better person or the person that I want to become. And then the truth settles in when you finally get it. The thing or the person or the opportunity that you have idolized, in fact, it didn't solve anything. You have it, 
and nothing's changed. You are still you with all the same habits, with all the same attitudes, with, with all the same defects, with, with all the same anxieties, and now you're enslaved to this idol. And the Bible doesn't go into great detail at this point, but I wonder what it was like for Adam and Eve to have reached forth and taken the fruit and taken the first bite, which I'm sure was so sweet and so delicious, but how quickly that sweetness turned to sand in their mouths as they realized what they gave up for that one bite of forbidden fruit. That, that, that one bite, that, did, did it start out sweet and turn sour when it dawned on them all that they had lost, all that they had thrown away for this momentary fleeting selfish act of rebellion, no matter how good the fruit itself was, there's no way that they were going to enjoy it as the reality came crashing down of what they had done, how quickly they went from elation to the soul-crushing horror of judgment and death and the reality of a broken covenant with God. And that's why I referred to that scene at the end of the movie. It's so, it, it's so brilliant, the way they go from happiness to, wow, this is not what we thought it would be, and this is going to be very difficult. This is what happens when we love things more than God. Idols never satisfy us. I don't care how much you want them. I don't care how hard you fight to attain them. Idols never satisfy us the way that we think they will, and we always have to replace them with a new idol. Even if the thing we're pining for is not sinful itself, even if it is a quite wonderful thing that we want, marriage or children or education or career or wealth or influence, if we make that thing more important than our obedience and faithfulness to the Lord, it will inevitably fail to satisfy. You will not be satisfied if you turn your desire into an idol and you ignore what God has to say. And yet, and yet we run through this cycle. We do this. We go from one thing to the next, one pursuit to the next. You see this with the way that men string their wives and their families along where a man will tell his wife, you know, baby, if we just get this one thing sorted out, if we get this one opportunity, everything's going to be fixed. Our family is going to be happy. We're going to solve all of our problems. If we just get this thing, this opportunity, of course, you get that thing and you're still you and she's still her and the kids are still the kids and you find out that that didn't fix anything. So you have to make up a new, you have to trump up a new thing to say, hey, if we just get over this hump, if we just do this thing, then everything will be fixed. Young ladies, be very, very, very cautious when there's a, a man, a young man interested in you, and he's talking about all these dreams that he has, and it's all this stuff that if it, just when I get this break, everything's going to be better. Uh, when you hear that, run the other way, because I've known enough of those guys, and I know what they're like, and that's the way men act. It's, it's all just a bunch of distraction from the thing that really needs to be fixed, which is you. You need to be a faithful, hardworking, covenant-keeping man. That's what will mend your family. That's what will heal your family. But this is the trap that Israel falls into in our story today. As we read last week, Samuel had restored Israel to an Eden-like state. He, he, when Samuel came on the scene, Israel was in disarray, and Israel was in uh, the midst of corruption. And so Samuel revitalizes the culture by leading them to destroy their idols, by going on a circuit around Israel, ministering to and teaching and judging Israel. He re-energized the priesthood by establishing schools and seminaries and training men to, to love God's law and to teach it. He reorganized worship. Samuel relocated what was left of the temple 
uh, the tabernacle at the time. And he, he put it in a new sanctuary, put it in a new place, and he built altars like the patriarchs did. Israel was set back into an Eden-like covenant relationship with God. They have a golden opportunity now to walk in faithfulness, to live with Yahweh in peace. Yahweh is our king. Yahweh is our defender. But in spite of their privilege, in spite of this wonderful opportunity that Samuel has set them up for, they repeat the sin of Adam. They stretch out their hand to seize forbidden fruit and they bring condemnation down on their heads. The thing they want is a good thing. They want a king and there's no sin in wanting a king or asking for a king, but they go about it the wrong way for the wrong reasons and with incredibly bad timing as we're about to see. Now, when we open up this chapter, chapter eight, some time has gone by since the covenant renewal service at Mizpah that we read about last week in chapter seven, uh, where the Philistines were subdued uh, by the thunder of Yahweh while the prayers of the people went up, while the sacrifice went up, God fought the Philistines for them. But now we find uh, Samuel's an old man. He was about 40 years old at that point in chapter seven. Now he's, he's an old man, at least 20 or 30 years have passed and his sons are old enough to serve as judges in Israel themselves. He has two sons mentioned here. One is Joel, Joel, Yah is God, Yah, Yahel, Yah, Yahweh is God. And Abijah, which means my father is Yah, Abi, father, Yah, is, is Yahweh. Ab Abijah, my father, is God. So they've got good names. And they serve in Beersheba. Beersheba has a lot of history, but Beersheba is not a metropolis. It's not a center uh, or, a, or an influential uh, hub of culture in Israel. Beersheba is the southernmost city in Israel. It's out there on the very edge of civilization. It's out there where not many people live. You know, the edge of civilization, uh, civilization like Anger, North Carolina, or Toadsuck, Arkansas, or Pumpkin Center, Mississippi. You know, right out there, right on the edge. You, you've heard the phrase in the scriptures, it's repeated often, uh, that something took place from Dan to Beersheba. Well, Dan is the northernmost territory, and Beersheba is the southernmost town. Uh, Dan to Beersheba is often used in the scriptures. And, and so, uh, also, remember when Elijah is running from Ahab and Jezebel, where does he go? He goes to Beersheba because that's the furthest you can be away from civilization and still be in Israel. So Joel and Abijah, Samuel's sons, are judges out in the backwaters. They're out in the boonies and they're corrupt, like small town, typical, stereotypical judges. They're corrupt. They take bribes. They're, they're unfaithful. Unfaithful sons, as we've seen already, unfaithful sons, it's, this is a theme in Samuel. This sets us up for the faithfulness of adopted sons. Remember, Eli has unfaithful sons, but it's the adopted son, Samuel, who is the faithful son. Samuel has unfaithful sons, but Saul is going to be like his adopted son, and is faithful for a while. Saul will be faithful for a while, but when Saul falls, it's going to be David, his son-in-law, who is the faithful son, who takes the kingship, uh, the crown forward. So this is a theme, unfaithful sons in, in, the book of, uh, in the book of Samuel. And so we would expect to see these men uh, do this. These two men are all about dishonest gain. They take bribes, they pervert justice, and they are a shame to their father. But there's an important contrast between the sons of Samuel and the sons of Eli. 
Uh, we can't draw a straight parallel because the scriptures don't draw a straight parallel between the wickedness of Samuel's sons and the wickedness of Eli's sons. It isn't the same situation. Remember, God sent a prophet to Eli and warned him about the unfaithfulness of his sons. God deals directly with Eli, charges Eli directly with his failure to curb the sin of his sons. It was because Eli loved his sons more than he loved God that God judged the house of Eli, and God dealt directly with Hophni and Phinehas. It was the fault of Eli that Hophni and Phinehas turned out the way that they did. He didn't, he didn't put any barriers between them and their sin. Later on, we're going to see David's sons suffer and rebel directly as a result of David's poor uh, uh, work as a father, his, his poor uh, work as a husband, David's sons are going to fall. It's because of David's failures, and the scriptures are clear about this. But we don't have the same instruction about Samuel's sons. Now, we could draw inference, and we could say, well, maybe, or obviously we think, maybe there's some defect in Samuel that made his sons turn out this way, but God doesn't say that, and we don't get this direct instruction. Now, was Samuel sinless? No, Absolutely not. There were perhaps a great many things that Samuel could have done better. And no doubt he had many things to repent of as a father. If you as a father don't have things to repent of, you're not paying attention. You're not awake. We have a great many things to improve on and to be sanctified in and to grow in uh, with regards to raising faithful children. Uh, Samuel certainly could have uh, repented of a great many of things, but the Bible does not draw a direct line between the sins of Samuel and the sins of his sons in a cause and effect manner. It does do that with Eli. It does do that with David, but not with Samuel. And so it is possible that Samuel raised his children to be faithful and they fell away as adults. They rebelled as adults. And, and of course, when our sons rebel, it's up to us as fathers to stand against the sins of our children. We stand with the church. We stand with Jesus. That's what faithfulness requires. And that's managing your house well to stand with the church against the sins of your, of your children. And that's what Eli failed to do and why Eli was judged. But um, again, I'm, I hesitate to say that there's an obvious defect in Samuel's fatherhood and in his son's rebellion. Notice that even God himself has sons who rebel. Is there some defect in God's faithfulness? Is there some defect in God's fatherhood that caused Adam to rebel? What more could God have done for Adam that he didn't do? And even God asked that question of Israel. What more could I have done for you? And yet you turned to idols. Uh, Israel fell to idolatry, and that was all on her. So there are significant points of contrast, I, I believe, between Eli and Samuel as fathers. Eli and his sons practiced their corruptions at the heart of Israel, right? Uh, Eli's sons practiced their corruption at the heart of worship, at the tabernacle, committing fornication and theft and abuse. Joel and Abijah, they're wicked, they're corrupt, they're, they're awful, they're fools, but they're off in the boonies. They're not at the center of of worship. They're not at the center of the heart of, of Israel. Nevertheless, it doesn't matter. Men in Israel seize upon this opportunity. They seize upon this failure in Samuel's sons, and that's bound to happen. Even if you raise your children to be faithful and they behave foolishly, it's still going to reflect on you. The adversary is still going to use it against you and cast doubt upon you and use it to throw uh, 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 
uh, questions on your ability to, uh, to, to lead. It reminds us all that we're not our own. Children, you are not your, it's not like you're free agents to do whatever you want to do and, and you're not connected to a family. Everything you do reflects on every other member of your family. And what I do reflects on my family as a, as a father and a husband. We're connected. We're tied together. So when there's a failure, somebody's going to take advantage of it. And they do here. The men of Israel use the opportunity of Samuel's age and the embarrassment that his sons have become to demand a, a king. Let me read verse 5 again. This is what they say. Look, Samuel, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now make us a king to judge us like all the nations. Um, now, we need to stop and think about their request for just a moment. Nothing in God's law condemns the idea of a king. So long as the king is an Israelite, so long as the king walks in the ways of Yahweh, the scriptures anticipate that one day Israel would have a king over her. In fact, the law gives uh, uh, instruction for how that king is to obey. And that's back in Deuteronomy 17. And if you have a Bible with you, we should walk back there and read what God says about what that king should be like and how we should, um, how we should direct him to act, how we should expect him to act, rather. So uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, hear, hear this. When you come to the land which Yahweh your God is giving you and possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom Yahweh your God chooses, one from among your brethren, you shall set as a king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. For Yahweh has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Neither shall he multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom that he shall write for himself a copy of the law uh, in a book from the one before the priests, the Levites. And it shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear Yahweh his God and be careful to observe all the words of this law and these statutes that his heart may not be lifted up above his brethren, that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right hand or to the left and that he may prolong his days in the kingdom, he and his children in the midst of Israel. So God's law anticipated that Israel would one day ask for a king and that it would work out and that it would be a good thing. Now, the phrase, a king like the nations, is used here in Deuteronomy. It first appears here, and that's not necessarily a bad thing, to have a king like the nations, if what we mean by that is we need a head of state to interact with the other nations, a prince under Yahweh who serves our nation, who leads our nation, who, who uh, pours himself out for our nation, who will even die for our nation. We need that kind of king. And, and it's, a, it's a king, well, the other nations have a head of state, so we need one too. Um, and that's not a sinful thing. Uh, but the way that the men in Samuel's day mean it, when they say we want a king like the nations, you get the sense that they mean we're asking for the same kind of king that the nations have. We want the same kind of government. We want the same kind of civil order. And that's completely different. What does God require of the king in Deuteronomy 17? In God's law, God forbids the king from multiplying horses, from multiplying wives, and from multiplying gold. 
This is how the pagan kings behave. This is how they act. They build up large armies that they use for invasion and constant warfare. They, they build large harems to create alliances and to show everybody how virile they are and what mighty men they are, that they have so many wives. They heap up gold so that they don't serve the people, the people serve them, and they strip the wealth from the people. All of this is forbidden. By, uh, for Israel's king. Israel's king is forbidden from multiplying horses, they're multiplying, from multiplying gold, and from multiplying wives. Absolutely forbidden. And furthermore, his first priority as king is to sit down and copy out a handwritten copy of God's law. What, ha- what would happen if you did that? That'd be a great summer project, don't you think, kids? To just sit, let's do that. You wanna do that, young people? Are you with me? Let's, no. I'm not getting any excitement. Nobody's hand is shooting up saying I want to be first. What would happen if you sat down and copied out the Pentateuch word for word? Well, as a king, and it says he's supposed to do it before the Levites, you stop and you say, well, what does this mean? What are we supposed to do here? You'd have a more intimate understanding and a more intimate knowledge of God's law than you would have if you just breezed through it or if you had just flipped through it. You would say, well, wait a minute. We aren't doing this, and we haven't done this for a long time. We better get started. Or, wow, God forbids this other thing that we're doing. We better, we better stop doing this. And, of course, if the king is going to copy out the law by hand, in the ancient world, that implies that he's something of a scholar. He's something of a, a student and to be able to read and write. So these are the expectations that God lays out for a king in his law. God never said you can't have a king. God never said you're not supposed to ask for a king. Um, But what is wrong with this request in 1 Samuel? Well, four reasons. Four reasons that it's problematic. First of all, they're expressing a desire not to simply have a king like the other nations. What What is implicit in their request is they want to be like the other nations. They want Yahweh to function like the gods of the other nations. They want Yahweh to be like Baal or Chemosh, or Dagon. You know, it's nice to have some rituals. It's nice to have a priestly class. It's, you know, it's nice to have uh, a God in his temple. But we want to do what we want to do outside of all that. We don't want to be bound to this diet, to this uh, behavior and moral code. We, we want to be able to fornicate. We want to be able to take our marriages uh, loosely and not, not think about how God has ordered our lives. That's what we want. we want. We want to be our own people and let God be like the gods of the nations. Let's, let's act like that. That's the first thing. This, this request to have a king like the other nations is saying we want to be like the other nations. We want to be like the nations that serve idols. The second reason that this is a request is that there's no way that they could have had a king like God intended for them to have at this time in history. Why is that? Genesis 49 tells us that the king is coming from the tribe of Judah. Except there's a problem with the tribe of Judah right now. The tribe of Judah is presently disqualified because of Judah's illegitimate sons uh, from Tamar. Remember, there was this, uh, that all the sons of Judah are illegitimate. And there's, uh, in, in Deuteronomy as well, there's a pro- prohibition against anyone from an illegitimate birth of serving in Israel in any kind of official capacity. You can't even vote in Israel up to the 10th generation. Well, it hasn't been 10 generations since Judah. Um, 
Yes, Deuteronomy 23 says one of illegitimate birth cannot serve in government and can't vote until the 10th generation. So let's put all this together. The king is coming from Judah. Judah's disqualified until the 10th generation. Therefore, it's God's desire that we live under judges until that 10th generation. God is going to give us a king when that 10th generation gets here. Last summer, we studied the book of Ruth, which tells us all about the redemption of the tribe of Judah. And, and remember how Ruth points us back to Tamar and Judah. And then and at the end of Ruth, it points us forward with that genealogy of David, which traces out the generations from Judah to David, which end up being how many generations? 10, right? It gives us 10 generations, and what does that show us? Okay, now Judah is finally ready to serve as king with David. Well, everyone in Israel is supposed to know the Bible, and they're supposed to know this. They know that they're to live with judges in the land until God gives them a qualified king from the tribe of Judah. So this request is premature. This request is impatient. Hebrews chapter 6 tells us that a mark of faith is patience. Listen to Hebrews chapter 6. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence and assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promise. Let me reword that. God's promises are inherited by those who are patient. How many stories in the Bible are stories of people waiting and working faithfully in less than perfect circumstances? Noah, Abraham, David, Elijah, Jesus, all have to wait. We are largely, however, an impatient people. We get easily frustrated. We get easily discontented. We are easily put out when we have to wait on change or growth or improvement or development. And when you get impatient, when we are impatient, we tend to act really, really stupid. Impatience breeds stupidity. Impatience breeds rebellion and sin. We make bad decisions in our impatience. We get short-tempered, we're abrasive, we are cruel and mean-spirited, we are graceless when we are impatient. We are tone-deaf and blind to the work of God's Holy Spirit, and we come out with things like these men brought to Samuel. So that's the second problem. This is a sinfully impatient request. The third reason that this is not a faithful request, is that they're ignoring what God has done for them recently in history. If we skip ahead a little bit to verse 20, they say, we want a king like all the nations that will go out before us and fight our battles. What just happened in Israel just a couple of decades before? We want a king who's going to go out and fight our battles. You already have a king who fights your battles. Yahweh is fully capable of fighting your battles. He has shown himself faithful to liquidate the Philistine force, of knocking down their idols, of decapitating their government and their power structure, of thundering at the armies of the Philistines and watching them collapse in confusion over and over and over. So far in 1 Samuel, the point of all these events has been to show that Yahweh is a faithful and capable king. Yahweh is your king. And so when they say, we want a king who fight our battles for us, they're forgetting everything that God has done for them. And they're saying, he's not good enough for what we need. Fourthly, the fourth reason is that not only they're rejecting 
the king that they already have, Yahweh, but they're also rejecting the anointed man that God has given them. Samuel's name means requested of the Lord. And so they're asking for a man to do everything that they want him to do, but they already have somebody asked of the Lord, requested of the Lord. There's nothing wrong with Samuel. In fact, that comes later on. We see uh, Samuel ask, have I ever done anything to you? Have I ever sinned against you? Have I ever been unfaithful? And all the people say, no, you have never been unfaithful. You have never done anything wrong. So Samuel's a good man. There's nothing wrong with Samuel. And they're neglecting the gift that Samuel has been to them. And this was personally hurtful to Samuel. And this comes out in the next few verses. I promise I'm going to just fly through the rest, rest of this chapter. All of this has been important foundational stuff, but we're just going to move quickly through the rest. Uh, verse 6. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, give us a king to judge us. So Samuel prayed to Yahweh and Yahweh said to Samuel, heed the voice of the people and all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. According to all the works which they have done since the day that I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, with which they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now therefore heed their voice, however you shall solemnly forewarn them and show them the behavior of the king who will reign over them. And Samuel pretty much goes through the same thing that Jesus goes through, the rejection and the shame of, of, of being cast aside, even though he's been faithful to them. But God says, give them what they want. That may be the most horrifying curse in all of the scriptures. Give them what they ask for, we need the Lord to protect us from foolish wishes. Psalm 19 prays, keep your servant from presumptuous sins. And that's a prayer I have to pray often. I pray that that's a prayer that's on all of our lips. Lord, keep us from foolish requests. We need to pray, Lord, protect us from ourselves. Protect us from our own folly. Here, the Lord, however, says, just give them what they want. Give them what they ask for. But tell them what they're in for. Tell them what they're getting themselves into. And listen for the phrase, he will take. And listen to how many times you hear that phrase, he will take. So verse 10, so Samuel told all the words of Yahweh to the people who asked for a king. And he said, this will be the behavior of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them for his own chariots and to be his horsemen. And some will run before his chariots. He will appoint captains over his thousands and captains over his fifties. He will set some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and some to make his weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields, your vineyards, and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officers and servants. And he will take your male servants, your female servants, your finest young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take a tenth of your sheep and you will be his servants. And you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves and Yahweh will not hear you in that day. The king that they're getting because they're not gonna wait for the chosen king of Israel from Judah because they're gonna race ahead and insist upon a king ahead of time. He's gonna be a king that breaks all the laws of kingship. He's gonna build a big war machine and your sons are gonna run ahead of his chariots. You don't need chariots and horses if Yahweh fights your battles for you. You don't need chariots and horses unless you're gonna mount aggressive warfare. You can have defensive forces, you can have militia ready to defend your cities, but chariots are aggressive weapons. Here's the warning, you're gonna have more war. 
Not only that, but he's going to conscript people to make him rich, your servants. And he's especially going to conscript your daughters to be perfumers, cooks, and bakers. Your daughter might be called up to the palace to be a baker or a cook or a perfumer. But if the king takes a liking to her, he's going to make her his 14th wife or his 37th wife. And then all of your best fields and olive groves and your vineyards are all going to go to him. And he's going to take your best stuff and he's going to give it to who? To his servants. And he's going to make himself rich off of you by taking the first fruits and by taking a tithe. How much does he take? He takes a tenth. What's he doing? He's setting himself up to be God. He takes and he takes and he takes and he takes. Six times it says he takes. There's no restraint here. And he's going to make a big army. He's going to multiply horses. He's going to take your daughters. He's going to multiply wives. He's going to take all of your riches and he's going to multiply gold. That hits all the marks of Deuteronomy, which tells us what a king is not supposed to do. This king that they're about to get is going to be exactly what a king is not to be. And you would think that people would hear this and maybe say, well, maybe we need to think about this a little bit more. Maybe we need to go back to the drawing board and think about our request here. Maybe sort things out. Let us sleep on it. But they don't even do that. Verse 19. Nevertheless, the people refused to obey the voice of Samuel. And they said, no, but we will have a king over us. That we also may be like all the nations. And that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And Samuel heard all the words of the people. And he repeated them in the hearing of Yahweh. So Yahweh said to Samuel, heed their voice and make them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, every man go to his city. Hey, I've got a great deal for you. I've got a car, got great gas mileage. Um, every time you put it in fourth gear, the transmission is liable to fall out of it on the highway. Um, and, and if I were to tell you that and you were to say, hey, do you offer financing? That would not be a great, that would not be a great transaction. If I were to say, hey, I've got this brand new kitchen tool, it will transform your time in the kitchen. It will absolutely revolutionize your food preparation. One problem Every time you try to cut an onion, you're going to lose a finger. I mean, not just like accidentally, you will lose a finger every time you use this gadget. And you say, wow, do you take plastic? Can I have two? Here's the deal, Samuel says. You can have a king, but he's going to take your money. He's going to take your sons and daughters, and he's going to get you wrapped up in all kinds of wars. And they say, where do we sign? That's exactly what we're looking for. God is going to give them exactly what they're asking for, which is a king like all the nations. And so Samuel sends everybody home with the promise that they're going to have just such a king. And the next chapter is where we're going to meet Saul. Well, it's very providential that we come to this section of scripture today because today we are celebrating and remembering the ascension of our Lord. And so to have a text that's all about kings and what a faithful king does and how an unfaithful king operates is providential. How is this Ascension Sunday? Well, if we're tracking from Easter, remember Jesus spent 40 days after his resurrection teaching and appearing to his disciples. And then on the 40th day after the resurrection, he ascended to take the right hand of the Father and sit down on his throne. And from there, he rules over all creation. So last Thursday was 40 days from Easter. Last Thursday was Ascension. And this is the Sunday after Ascension. This is Ascension Sunday where we remember all this. The Ascension tells us that our king is a good king. Our king is the faithful king. Our king Jesus is the faithful king from the tribe of Judah, the one that God picked out. He's the king who through patience and suffering was crowned king. 
that's the king who rules over us. He is our brother. He is our friend. He is our shepherd. Our man is ruling the cosmos. We don't have a stranger on the throne over all of creation. We have our friend and our savior and our redeemer. And if Jesus is king, that means power is not king. That means money is not king. That means pleasure is not king. And therefore, we must not reject his kingship over us like Israel did. Uh, we must not reject him and ask for another king as they so arrogantly asked. Yet, you and I are liable to do that very thing. Like the chief priest during Jesus' trial, they say, take him away. We have no king but Caesar. We don't want him to reign over us. When do we do that? Well, we do that. We behave like Israel. We demand another king when we are convicted of our sins and we stop up our ears and we refuse to listen to the very clear commands of scripture, the very clear direction of God's law. We always have an excuse for why that doesn't apply to us. We always have this little internal lawyer on retainer that kicks into gear and immediately explains why this or that in God's word doesn't apply to our situation. Obviously, God didn't know about my situation when he said that. I'm so exceptional. I'm so different. Obviously, I have a loophole. And we satisfy ourselves that we're right. We say, I don't need your kingship over me. I don't need your rule over me. I'm okay on my own. Israel didn't want to hear that the king had to come from Judah. They didn't want to know about these warnings. They didn't listen. We want another king with another word to give us. And, and this is our excuse to reject Samuel and everything that he says. That's the first way we obey. That's the first way we behave like Israel in rejecting the kingship of Jesus over us when we say, well, we're not interested. I want to listen myself. The second way we act like them is when we prefer gimmick and new strategy over repentance and submission to the Lord Jesus. Churches tend to think that if we have a problem, it must be that we're applying the wrong technique, the wrong methodology. Something is wrong with the system. Well, it's not the system that's broken. It's not the method that's broken. It's you that's broken. It's me that's broken. Well, I don't want to deal with that. So maybe we need a new strategy. And so we flip from strategy to strategy and, to, and to method to, from method to method. What's the problem here? What problem are they trying to address? Eli, I'm sorry, Samuel is old and his two sons are unfaithful. Well, let's pick that apart. Eli, Samuel, Samuel is old. Well, Moses was old. Abraham was old. That, that doesn't disqualify him. So what are we left with? Well, his sons are not faithful. Well, let's deal with that. Let's get after that. Let's focus and address that. No, we need a whole new plan. We need a whole new strategy, a whole new methodology. We need, we need a king. That's the second way. The third way we act like them is when we want to be just like everybody else. They say, we just want to be like all the other nations, just normal. Even if you think that you're quirky and alternative, you know, you think, I want to be my own person. I want to be a little bit out of step with everything else. I'm, 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 I'm edgy. I'm different. Uh, there's a million more like you at least, maybe two million, maybe five million more like you at, at least. You know, what's really difficult is to come apart and be separate and be holy. Holiness and righteousness aren't easy. We want to say, uh, I want to be like them. And that is saying, I want to be like the people who serve their gods. And I want my God to be like their God. Here's the thing that Israel failed to see. And here's the thing that they missed very quickly. The thing that you want so badly, the thing that you're willing to ignore God to have, 
the thing that you're willing to push aside other faithful people like Samuel to possess and ignore the warnings, the thing that you're willing to claw and grasp and agitate and destabilize for to get, this thing, whatever it is, this person, this idol, this thing that you want, will not satisfy you. It will not be pleasing to you. It will turn to sand in your mouth. It will not make everything better. It will not save you. It will enslave you and it will destroy you. And that's what Israel is about to learn the hard way. Let's pray. Father, we uh, thank you for Jesus. We thank you for our righteous king. Please teach us patience, the patience that he exhibited, even the patience under torment and uh, false accusation, the torment of slander and the torment of brutality and hatefulness. Uh, Father, teach us patience, we pray, so that we may not grasp ahead of time for those things that you have kept back from us, but that we might earn them uh, through, through faithful patience. Uh, may we not be like Israel in their error here, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.